Let me get my podium here and I'll bring it around front and I'll be with you just a second. Our, uh, Nick usually does this, who's playing Congress, but he's not playing today, so I'm batting on my own. How you doing? Good morning. High point. I want to thank you for joining us here in person. I want to thank you for those who have joined us online. We're really glad to have you here this morning. Uh, back in uh, 1927, Time magazine started to recognize a particular influential person once a year, and they called the issue Man of the Year. But then they realized that there were influential women in our world as well. So they changed the name of that to Person of the Year. And the influential people that they selected for this particular edition and this honor, they came from all walks of life. Uh, be, there was the Pope to, to politicians, from entertainers to, to business executives, from social media icons to um, whistleblowers. Uh, when the the person of the year edition became so popular, um, an opportunity knocks, they decided that they had to act quickly. So in an attempt to sell even more magazines, in 1999, they took their award a step further and they named a person of the century. They developed a list of people, the 100, 100 most significant people over the last 100 years, and, and they uh, chose one. And certainly, I won't be around next time that they do this, but uh, the choice for the person of the century back then was none other than Albert Einstein. Apparently, out of all the people they talked about, they felt he was the most influential. Now, if we were to make an impromptu poll this morning with all of you who are here in this building, and I were to ask you, other than Jesus, who would you cho choose as being the greatest person of, of not just the century, but of all time, I'm confident that I would get all kinds of different responses. Some of you would probably be inclined to say, my grandmother or my grandfather because of their wisdom, because they love me so much, uh, and because uh, greatness can be perceived in so many different ways. Others might name their favorite president or a favorite athlete or even a great Christian leader like, like the Reverend Billy Graham. In fact, even Jesus had his own perceptions of what greatness looked like. Jesus himself uh, had selected a person that he believed to be the greatest of all time. Did you know that? In, in Matthew 1.11, our Lord and Savior Jesus, who certainly is an expert and an authority on people, said this, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I mention all of this because today as we continue in our series from the book of John, we're moving on to verse 19 of chapter 1. In fact, in preparation, go ahead and turn to, to the book of John. It is here where the apostle John records his testimony of his first week, of this first week of Jesus' ministry. And the first person that we encounter in that first day is none other than John the Baptist the greatest person of all time, according to Jesus. If you were here with us last week, you'll notice this, that the, sermon, the scripture that we read talked briefly about John, but in today's scripture reference, we're going to talk more about his life and what he was called to do in greater detail. And again, I, I just want to help you to keep this straight in your mind, because if maybe you're a new believer, uh, you may not recognize this, but uh, remember the book of John that we are studying was written by the Apostle John, who is writing about John the Baptist. 
So it's important that you don't mix those two up. When I say John, you may be guessing who's he talking about. And as we talk about John the Baptist, you may remember that God chose him for a special purpose. In Luke chapter 1, we are introduced to a priest named Zechariah and his wife, whose name is Elizabeth. This is a couple who were unable to bear children, and like most couples who want to have a family who find themselves in that situation, they made it a matter of prayer. Well, just like Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament, God answered their prayer, and they conceived very late in life. So an angel appears to Zechariah to tell him the good news that his wife had conceived and that they would give birth to a son. But it's not only that, the angel tells him what he should name the boy and also explains that God has a special purpose for this child being born. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, this conversation is dictated. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist was given the privilege to introduce Jesus to the nation of Israel, but it also meant that he had the difficult task of preparing their hearts to receive Jesus, to receive their Messiah. And you can clearly see the importance of both John the Baptist and the special calling that God had placed on his life because you will recognize that he is mentioned at least 89 times in the New Testament. Now, if you've ever taken any time to read or study about John the Baptist, I'm sure that you will agree with me that he was a very different kind of an individual. In Mark's Gospel, He tells us that John comes striding out of the desert wearing a coat made of camel hair and a homemade leather belt around his waist. He was eating locusts and wild honey. Definitely not the kind of guy you maybe want your daughter to bring home one night. But but John was a man's man. He was a no-nonsense, earthy kind of a guy. He wasn't interested in being a people pleaser. He spoke it like it is, and he didn't sugarcoat anything that he spoke. He didn't hesitate to step on people's toes if that's what was required. He shot from the hip. In fact, his his no-holes-barred brand of of truth-telling is ultimately what got him beheaded because he preached against the sexual immorality of King Herod. I mean, John wasn't a salesman who would try to sweet-talk you into something. He was not a politician who would try to match his words to the popular opinions of that day, because John didn't care what people thought or what they said about him. All he cared about was pleasing God, and his sole focus was to fulfill his mission, and that was to deliver God's message. But in spite of his non-politically correct approach, 
In spite of his radical diet and his weird wardrobe, John came, became immensely popular. In his gospel, Luke tells us that multitudes went out to hear him speak. Matthew 3, 5 says, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. And these multitudes included all segments of society, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, tax collectors, the rich, the poor, soldiers, you name it, people came there. And if you've ever wondered why John, who was such a different character, had such broad appeal, and why the multitudes came from all over to be near him, you've got to remember something. The people of that day longed to hear from God. It had been 400 years since a prophet had appeared in Israel. And this shouldn't have surprised anyone because the prophet Amos had foretold uh, of, of centuries of spiritual famine that were to come. In Amos 8.11, he says this, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. The literature written in those famine years between the Old Testament and the New Testament tells of the yearning of men's heart to hear a word from their creator. And so word began to spread that God's voice could be heard in John's bold, no compromising style of preaching. And like thirsty animals being drawn toward water, people came from everywhere. Everyone sensed that through John's teachings, through John's message, that the years of silence had finally come to an end. Now, when the word of this phenomenon reached Israel, and specifically reached the ears of the Sanhedrin, they sent representatives out to check this, this guy out. And that finally leads us to our text this morning. So take your Bibles, follow along. We're going to read John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. This scripture includes the Apostle John's account, as I said, of the first two days of Jesus' ministry. But then we are going to skip past that, and we're going to go to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. You can put your finger in that spot where we will read some of the last words spoken by John the Baptist. So John 1, 19 through 34, I'll be reading from the New International Version. It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, 
the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's what we talked about last week, that Christ has always been. He created creation. And that's what he means about he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And let's move over to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. What I want to try to accomplish today based on these scriptures that we read as we look at the life and the ministry of John the Baptist is very simple. I want to understand what it is that made John the Baptist such an amazing human being. And my reason is because if Jesus said that he is the greatest who was ever born, then I think it would be important and I think we would all have to agree that this might be the type of guy that we would want to emulate in our Christian journey. Also, I want to look at what it is that makes John this prototype, if you will, of the kind of person that I think we should all strive to be like. And I believe the first characteristic that we need to look at this morning is John's attitude. You see, in spite of his great popularity, John remained humble. The clearest indication we have of this is how he always put Jesus ahead of him. He always put Jesus first. You'll see this in two great illustrations within the scriptures that we read. The first is found in the interview that took place between him and the emissaries that came out from the Sanhedrin when they asked him who he was. 
John knew exactly what they were trying to get at. And, and so they asked him about his identity, and he gave them initially a pretty forceful response when he said, I am not the Christ. Now, in John's days, there had already been several messianic pretenders. Historians like Josephus wrote about it, and even Gamaliel in the Bible talks about these false Christs in Acts 5, verse 36 through 37, when he wrote this, some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the, last, in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Some people even asked the Apostle Paul if he were the Messiah. In Acts 21.38, it says this, aren't you, they're asking him, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? I mention all this so that you will understand, with his great popularity, it would have been very easy for John to announce, yes, look at this, I am the Messiah. If he had done that, I am certain that the multitudes would have followed him in even greater ways than they did, and even greater ways than those messianic imposters who had come before him. He clearly let them know that he, was, that, that, that he was not the Messiah, but the Messiah was clearly already on the ground. He had already arrived in Israel. By this time, John had already baptized Jesus. And when he did, God revealed to him that Jesus, his cousin, was the Messiah. And we see how firmly John believed this and the forcefulness of his reply, again, in John 1.20, where it says that John did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. And in the Greek, the personal pronoun is, is emphasized, so it could easily be translated in this way. I am not the Messiah, but the one who is already is standing among you. He has already come. But instead of asking for more information about the arrival of the Messiah, this highly focused delegation pressed on in their interrogation of John the Baptist. That's when they said to him or asked, well, if you're not the Messiah, then are you Elijah? They asked this because they knew that it had been prophesied that Elijah would return. You will find that in the end of the Old Testament in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God had said, I will send you the prophet Elijah for that great and dreadful day of the, when the, of the Lord comes, for when that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. But they misunderstood this prophecy. Elijah would come, but not in the flesh, at least not yet. So when asked if, Elijah, if he was Elijah in the flesh, John said, I am not. So with two no responses under their belt, these guys asked John if he was the prophet. This is a reference to something that Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. But John denied being the prophet as well. So in essence, they said, you've completely exhausted our checklist. If you're not the Messiah, 
If you are not Elijah, if you are not the prophet, then who and what are you anyway? They wanted an answer to take back to those who had sent them, to the other priests and to the other Levites. And and in his response, John kind of offers us our first word picture. It's kind of our our first sermon illustration because he says in John 121, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And I want you to recognize something here, how John humbled himself in the things that he did not say. He did not say, I am John, the son of Zechariah, the priest. That would have added credibility to him. He did not say, an angel foretold of my birth and made it possible for me to be born to two elderly parents. He did not say, the Holy Spirit entered my body while I was in my mother's womb. He did not say, I am God's greatest prophet and the Messiah, by the way, is my cousin. He did not even say that he was a man. He simply said, I am but a voice. There were no claims to be made for himself, just a voice crying out, make straight for the way of the Lord. And you have to understand the meaning in what he said there, because in John's day, the roads were not surfaced. They were just dirt trails. And when it rained, the wagons that would go across those roads would leave huge hard ruts. So when a king knew, or when when the people underneath the king knew that the king was going to a particular part of his kingdom or or a particular uh, province, they would send workers out and they would smooth those roads so that when the king went over it in his chariot or whatever he went on, it would be a nice, smooth little journey for everyone. So what John was really saying to them is, I'm a nobody. I'm the road repairman. I'm a voice that is telling you to get ready for the Messiah, who, by the way, is not coming, but he's already here. He is on his way. In short, John was telling, or he was saying what every pastor, what every teacher, and yes, what every Christian ought to be doing. We should be a voice pointing people to the direction of our Heavenly Father. And here's a great truth for you and I to grasp and to understand. Anytime people see us instead of Jesus, anytime that we grab the spotlight, anytime that we get in the way of of people hearing about God's immense great love, we are straying from the standard that John the Baptist established. To be great in God's eyes is to realize that we are not great at all. We are to be just a voice. We are to be just a voice pointing people to Jesus. And we must always remember that if we do anything good in God's kingdom, we give God the praise. He said in John 3.27, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Well, that leads to the second word picture that is found in John's third chapter. Jesus was baptizing upriver from John, and every day, more of the multitude that was following John was now going upriver to hear Jesus. When John's followers asked him how he felt about all this, about his dwindling crowd, he showed humility once again. 
I want you to listen again to John 3, 28 through 30, where John says this, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. You've got to remember something. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is regularly portrayed or pictured as the bride and God as the bridegroom. For example, when Israel left to follow false idols, God used the word picture and he charged them with spiritual adultery as though they walked away from their marriage union. And this is the picture that John has in his mind here when he said those words. He knew that Jesus was God in the flesh, which made Israel his rightful bride. So John drew on this word picture, and he said he was the friend of the bridegroom. In Hebrew, there is a word for that. It, it, it is shoshbin. A shoshbin played a unique part in a Jewish wedding ceremony. He was like a combination of the best man and the wedding planner at the same time. He arranged for the wedding. He delivered the invitations. He set everything up for the wedding feast. And when this was all done, he had one more very, very special task or duty. After the ceremony, it was his job to be the liaison between the bride and her bridegroom. He would, his task was to guard the bedchamber where the bride waited for her groom to come, and he was not to let anyone else in. The only time that he opened that door was when he recognized the bridegroom and he recognized his voice. So when he let the groom in, he went off on his way rejoicing because his task, his most important task, had been completed. He did not begrudge the bride or the bridegroom their, their moment of joy. He understood his only task was to bring the two of them together, and when he did, he willingly and he gladly faded out of the picture. So can you see the connection here? John's task was to bring the Messiah and Israel together. And once he was done, he was more than happy to fade away into obscurity. So it was not with envy that he said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. It was with a joyful awareness that he had done the job that God had called him to do and entrusted him to do. And as I, as I suggested, this is clearly another way that we should emulate John. We should do everything within our ability to point people towards the direction of, cro to the, of the cross, to point people toward Jesus Christ. It's not about us, ever. Anytime we find ourselves wanting to make sure people notice what we do whenever we do anything good for God's kingdom, we're treading on dangerous ground. Whenever we find people praising us for anything that we do in God's kingdom, when it was him that gave us the ability to do it, that is wrong. Our job, like everybody else's, is to point people in the direction of Christ. It's never about us. It's always about him. 
I like what the great missionary William Carey said. He said, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. Listen, until we come to the place in our individual lives where all we care about is promoting Jesus, then I think we'll have a tendency to want to try to steal the show in some way. We, we need to embrace the same kind of self-denial that John embraced. Jesus must increase and you and I must decrease. Our lives are to be about Jesus. But so very often, we have this tendency to make it about us. It's been said that, that this is a struggle of our personal ego. When your ego is too big, then what happens is you are, you are stealing attention that belongs to our God. There's an acronym that someone created for ego with regard to what we're discussing here, edging God out. When God gets edged out, it's easy for you to think that you are responsible, that you deserve the credit for the great things that God has done in your life, for the things that he's allowed you to overcome, for the, the, the abilities that he's given you to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, for, for your teaching skills, for whatever it is that you do for the kingdom of God, we tend to want to act like we did it, but we didn't. It's all about God. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself guilty in that way. I think it's very human for us to think that way at some times. So is there any prideful thing inside of you that rises up that ever wants you to take glory for the thing that God did? Are you pointing people to Christ or are you pointing people to yourself? Let me tell you, this is a big problem in the modern-day church in America, particularly with regard to some of these celebrity pastors and celebrity worship leaders that we see. People attend those churches for a pastor or for music, and it's almost like that they're following pastor so-and-so or worship leader so-and-so instead of following Jesus, and that's a dangerous place. So the point is, if you honestly see ways in which you are increasing, when maybe you should be decreasing, then an important thing for us to do is to sit down and refocus on all of what God has done in your life for you and through you. Romans 12.3 says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Arthur W. Pink wrote this, Humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I am truly occupied with the one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of our Lord. I love that. Well, the second thing that I noticed that makes John great and somebody that we should emulate is when we look at John's actions. What I mean is that John just wasn't a guy who stood around being humble, which was important, but he acted. He did the good work that God had prepared him to do in advance. Specifically, he was faithful to proclaim the message that God had given him. I mean, it was his voice that was crying out in ways that helped people to understand who Jesus was and why he came. 
For example, look back at John 3.25, where John's interrogators asked him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? He answered their question by saying this, The reason that I came baptizing in water was so that he, the Christ, the one whose sandals that I am not worthy to untie, that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, these religious leaders asked this question because in their mind, water baptism was something that Gentiles did when they converted to Judaism. Being immersed was a way for these non-Jews, or or as they perceived it, these pagans, to admit and repent of their sins. But you got to understand something. John was baptizing everyone. He wasn't just baptizing pagans. He was baptizing, yes, the Jews. John was saying that they were just as bad as the pagans of the world. And you got to understand how shocking this would have been to those prideful religious leaders. In essence, John was challenging this, this Jewish concept that every descendant of Abraham was already in God's kingdom. In fact, if you'll look in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, I want you to hear this shocking response, which isn't in John's gospel. You brood of vipers, he says to them. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I told you he didn't care what people thought of him, didn't I? So John's actions were shocking to the Jewish religious establishment. His message raised not just their eyebrows, but their ears. Because he was saying exactly what Paul would say later on. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's not all John did. He didn't just tell his listeners that they were sinners, but he told them about a loving Savior, the Messiah who had come to do something about their sin. When Jesus walked by, John said, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I've been telling you about. I baptize with water but he will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now this delegation, they would have understood this phrase, the Lamb of God. Back then, every Jew understood the concept of a sacrificial lamb. They first learned about about it in the story of Abraham, going up on that mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. And while hiking up that mountain continually, Abraham told his son that God would provide a substitute to die in his place, and he did. And everybody, every Jew understood this story. Israel also was, knew about the, the sacrificial lamb as a result of the institution of Passover. On that first Passover, if you will recall, they spread the blood of lambs over the doorposts of their homes so that the angel of death would stay away. They also understood that every day in the temple, 
Services were performed where lambs and goats were sacrificed for the people's sins. They knew that in every instance, the sacrifice meant the death of an innocent substitute in place for one who had sinned. So they would have understood that John was proclaiming the shocking message that the Messiah would now be the Lamb of God. God who came to die for our sins. After all, he was echoing uh, Isaiah's prophecy, saying that temple sacrifices were to now be fulfilled by the Messiah, Jesus, who would bear their sin. In Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, it says this, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So he identifies Jesus as the sin-bearing lamb. And every one of them would have understood this because the Passover feast was coming up. It was just around the corner. But John is saying, no longer will you need to sacrifice lambs. Because the Lamb of God has come. He has already come voluntarily. This is his mission to be sacrificed. And when he is sacrificed, he will deliver from death all of those who believed in him. And this is what I emphasized on Easter Sunday morning. Because not only did Jesus die for the sins of mankind... Not only was he brutally sacrificed, but he rose again three days later in resurrection power. And as I said, because his tomb was empty, all of those who follow Christ Jesus, guess what? Their tomb will be empty as well because immediately when a follower in Jesus Christ dies, he is in the presence of God for all eternity. Jesus came and he was the ultimate sacrifice. He died once for all the sins of the world. But he didn't just die. He rose again. And in doing so, he defeated Satan. And he defeated death. And he defeated the grave. He was the lamb for sinners slain. The late and famous minister, D.L. Moody, once said this. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. During his evangelistic campaigns, Moody loved to quote those words. It was his way of shocking the audience into the truth that death was not the end, but that death for a believer in Christ Jesus was only the beginning. And on December 22nd, 1899, his words came true. After decades of preaching and teaching and writing and traveling and evangelizing, his heart began to fail. And with his family gathered around him, he cried out, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. His family thought he was dreaming. Then he spoke to one of his sons. He said, this is no dream, Will. It's beautiful. It is, it is like a trance. If this is death, this is so sweet. There is no valleys here. God is calling me, he says, and I must go. It seemed like he saw heaven open up right before his eyes. And then he said this, this is my triumph. 
This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it for years. His face lit up. He said, Dwight, Irene, I see the children's faces. He's referring to his two grandchildren who had died in the previous year. And a few minutes after that, he took his last breath. And D.L. Moody entered into the presence of God. He died exactly like he lived, full of faith and ready to meet his Savior. This is a beautiful example of what having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ looks like, the Lamb of God. It is all about eternal life in God's presence when our time on this earth is done. The old hymn says it very, very clearly. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this down? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet if you would. So what we've learned today is that John the Baptist's calling, his purpose was to point everyone to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is my job today as well. It's what I want to do this morning. If you are watching us online or if you are here in this building and you do not know Jesus, what I mean by that is you've never invited him to be the Lord of your life. You've never asked him for forgiveness of your sins and to to be your Lord. You can do so this morning. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In a moment, we're going to pray. And I don't want you to just listen to my prayer, but you can pray a prayer of your own, a, a humble prayer of confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just acknowledge him that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came to this earth and that he walked and talked among us and he died a horrific death and that the blood that he shed on that cross, it's the cleansing agent. It is the agent that wipes away your and my sin. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. He will. He will come into your life and you will be, as the Bible says, a new creation. It'll change the way you look at life and we as a church would love to come alongside of you and to help disciple you in your faith as a new Christian, to get you into the Word of God so you have a greater understanding of what a life lived for Christ is all about. But for those of you here today who are already followers of Christ, and maybe you have been for 20, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, you've accepted Him already as Lord. I want to say this to you. As we've studied this morning, you can clearly see the faithfulness of John through his actions. Whenever he had the chance, he told people of the basic gospel message of Jesus Christ. He told people that the Messiah had come to die so that their sins could be washed away. I wonder what would happen in Red Bluff, California, if every person that's affiliated here with High Point patterned our lives after this man that Jesus called the greatest of all time. What would change in our community if we all strove to be as humble as John, always pointing people towards our Lord and Savior? What difference would it make in our community if we were as faithful as John was, faithful to call people to repentance and to tell them 
of why it is that Jesus came and died on that cross and rose again. I wonder what could happen to our community of Red Bluff. As I told you when I began, and I've referred to many, many times during this message, Jesus said that there was no one better, no one greater, born of a woman, than John the Baptist. He said that in essence, John was the greatest man of all time. But did you all, do you also know that in a very real sense, this contest for that title is not yet over? It's not. If we were to embrace John's attitudes and we were to embrace his actions and we were to be humble like John, and we constantly sent people's focus onto our Lord and Savior and what he has done, I believe that God could do some incredibly amazing things through each and every one of us. Is it conceivable that someone in this congregation could outperform the things that John the Baptist did in the time that we have left? I would say yes. I would say that this contest, if you want it, and it's not even a contest, is not over. Because someone in this building, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, could do great things in this church, but more so in this community, by leading people to Christ. Have you ever thought about that? The game is not over. It does not matter how long you've been serving the Lord. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. God is not done with you. He can use you in great ways, has already used you in great ways, and wants to continue to use you in even greater ways than he's done before. We could all become people who would direct people's focus to Jesus. That's what we've been called to do. I'd like you to bow your heads with me this morning. If you'd like to come to this altar, this altar is open should you want to pray here. But let's all join together in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day you've given us. Beautiful day. I thank you for the power of your written word. I thank you for the example of John the Baptist, an unusual man, but a humble man who fulfilled his calling. He did exactly what you asked him to do. He did exactly what you created him to do. And God, I, that's what I want to be. I want to be like John. I want to fulfill the things that you've given me to do, and I want to do them with excellence, and I want to do them humbly, and I pray, Father, that that would be the heart's cry of every person in this place, every person who is watching online. God, we know that anything good that we do for your kingdom is not us. It's done through your power of your spirit that indwells us, that allows us to do things that we never dreamed that we could do on our own. And every time we walk away from one of those encounters where you've used us greatly, we sit back and go, it was amazing. I didn't think I could do, I didn't think I could say those things. I didn't even know where that stuff came from. That's because you spoke through us, Lord. Allow us to be those kinds of vessels that would push self away and would allow you to flow through us. Pray, God, that you would make that our heart's cry. And Lord, for those who are watching online, those who are here who do not know you personally, I pray that they would have the courage to pray a very simple, very humble prayer. Jesus, you are the Son of God. I believe that. I believe that you came to die for my sin. I believe that you are the only way to God the Father. And I know that the blood that you shed 
is what cleanses me. So Father, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Become my savior. And dwell me with your spirit and allow me to live a different kind of a life. I'm tired of doing life the way I'm doing it on my own. I need you. I need your direction. I need your strength. Father, I know if they pray a prayer like that, it's sincere from their heart. You forgive. You give them salvation. And they can start down a new path of this life, living life in a different way, living life for your kingdom and not for theirs. That's our desire for all of us, God. Less of us and more of you. We want to see you emulated in and through us in greater ways. So Lord, help us as a church body, help us individually to be the men and women of God that you not only ask us to be, but that you need us to be in this world. And Lord, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go and guide and direct us the places we go, the people we see, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would be meant to build people up and not to tear them down. That we would also be very bright light shining in a very dark world. We would shine forth the love of Christ. Father, I pray that your love and your spirit would be so strong within us that we don't have to open doors. Doors are just open because people come to us and say, what is it about you that's different? What an opportunity to say, well, let me tell you about my Lord. God, I pray that you use every one of us, that you would open up doors for us to share your goodness, that we would tell people about who you are, why you came, that we would invite people into the doors of this church so that they could come to know you. That's our heart's cry. Lord, I pray that you'd use us. So, Father, I just ask also that you will keep us safe until we gather together again, come together as a family and worship you, keep us safe from COVID, keep us safe from any other sicknesses or disease or illness, keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us. I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you.